Good day. Let's get in the Word. We're in Mark chapter 2, preaching through the miracles of Jesus, 37 miracles in the New Testament Gospels that Jesus performed, and God allows us to experience each one of those miracles through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, it's a little quiet here this morning. First service was crazy. I don't want you to get outdone by first service, and because we make fun of you next week. So this morning, I want you to come alive, amen, and preach back to me. All right. It was, uh, turn the air condition up or down, something. Let me know. But uh, the word is powerful, and it deserves a response this morning. So here we are in Mark chapter 2, talking about the miracles of Jesus. And Jesus forgives and heals this paralyzed man. Now, if you didn't hear the first part of this, I encourage you to get online and get it in your spirit. A lot of moving parts here, a lot of powerful principles God's releasing. But I'm going to read to you Mark 2. I'm going to start in verse 1 and go through 12. And we're going to get the whole miracle, and then we're going to talk about the second half that we didn't get to touch the first time. So, Father, I thank you for the word this morning. I thank you for these people who have come hungry for your truth. God, send each one of them home with a deposit from the Father's heart today. Father, don't let any of us leave here like we came, but change us by the power of the word. And Father, allow these miracles to expand our faith and to give us boldness to believe you for big things, not to shrink back, but God, to believe big things from a big God. I prayed in Jesus' name and the church said, amen. So Mark chapter two, Jesus heals and forgives the paralyzed man. Verse one, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now verse 6 starts our new material. But some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up immediately and picked up his pallet and went out in in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. What a miracle. Powerful moment there. Jesus uh, just ministering to this man, but at the same time ministering to this crowd of people and the religious people there. And I want you to remember from part one here that Jesus was laying low in Capernaum. Why? Because he didn't seek crowds. You see, the pride of man seeks crowds. I want a big crowd. I want a big this. I want a big that. Listen, Jesus had no use for, you know, gathering crowds to himself. He wasn't there to build his ministry or build his notoriety. He was there to live among the people, to train his disciples, to die and to rise again. Amen. He stayed on point. He stayed with the mission. But unfortunately, wherever Jesus was, people found out. And, you know, he was kind of laying low, but they found out he was there. And then what happens? The crowd just, you know, fills the place to capacity. 
And we said that that's, that's a lesson to the contemporary church. What we don't need more of is bigger buildings, better technology, pastors that make sense and have good jokes, worship teams that hit all the right notes. Come on. That's not what we need more. More comfortable chairs, better air conditioning. No, we need more of Jesus in the church, amen. When Jesus is, when they found out Jesus was in the house, the house packed out. The question to the contemporary church is Jesus in the house. If he is, he'll fill the place. And so, you know, there's Jesus kind of laying low. The place fills up. He begins to minister to them. And here come these four men, and they're carrying, you know, the, their friend on, on their shoulders, on a stretcher, as it were. And, you know, we say that these four guys are the type of friends that all of us want to have. Amen. What great friends they were. They inconvenienced themselves. They burdened themselves for their friend. Not for their own good. They didn't need healing. He needed healing, amen? When you and I are in trouble, that's the kind of friends we need. Friends that'll rally around us. Friends that'll be there. Friends that'll help. Come on, anybody seen pictures, heard stories? That kind of friend. We all want friends like that. You know, and in a lifetime, if you gather enough to fill up one hand, you're doing good. And the thing is this, if we don't have friends like that, we should be friends like that. It pleases God when we lay down our lives one for another, when we help people do things that they can't do for themselves. Come on. And, and these, these guys are a reminder to us of how important friends are and the type of friends that we should be. Now, these guys were awesome. Why? Because they came with expectant faith. You don't put your friend on a stretcher and carry him through a crowd because you think, you know, Jesus might, you know, say something nice to him or sign an autograph. Hello. These guys had expectant faith. They knew if we could just get through the crowd, if we could just get up the roof, if we could just commit, you know, felonies and misdemeanors and break the guy's roof open, if we could just get Jesus to see our friend, he'll heal him. You see, that's the kind of expectant faith we need. Don't come to the house of God expecting routine. Don't come expecting the same old thing. Don't come, you know, expecting us, well, you know, pastor, just follow the agenda. You know, just stay on course here. Hey, sometimes we need to just get rid of the agenda and let the Holy Ghost move, amen? And don't get uncomfortable when the Holy Ghost moves. Woo! Woo, the Holy Ghost is moving. God's going to get out of control and weird stuff is going to happen. Come on. It's not going to get weird. That's flesh, amen. When God moves, it's beautiful. It's a sweet-smelling aroma, amen. Kim's got to find that later. So. so these guys had expectant faith. They're tenacious, and they took risks, and it's a beautiful picture of faith. Jesus ministers not to the perceived need of this man, but to the root need. See, everybody seeing that guy there thought, Jesus, he can't walk, heal him. Yeah, he was going to get to that. That was the need that everybody could see. It was the perceived need. But the root cause of this guy's issue, the root problem was he needed forgiveness. He needed to be forgiven. He needed to be restored. His relationship needed to be restored with God. And so he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's like, what? See, Jesus is not concerned about the perceived need as much as the root need. And the thing is, if we don't let God heal our root need, our problem grows back. How many times have we thought, man, this is the last time. I'm never doing that again. Lord, please, I'm, uh, you know, I'm set free. I'm delivered. Amen. I want you to go full circle, come back, and do the same thing again. Why? Because the root didn't come out. Amen. And once we let God deal with the root, then the problem doesn't grow back. How many would like to say, this is the last time and have it be the last time, amen? How many would like to get delivered and set free? 
We got to let God deal with the roots. We pick up in verse 6 here. Uh, and verse 6 is becoming very typical of the miracles of Jesus in that it says here, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Now, here's what's become typical. At every miracle Jesus does, the religious crowd is there. What are these guys doing there? They don't like Jesus. They're jealous of him. They're plotting against him. Yet it seems like every time he does a miracle, it's like the KGB's there. They got earpieces in. They're listening. They're taking notes, you know. And, and they're there. They're constantly there. It becomes typical. They're watching. They're scrutinizing. And they're resisting Jesus. You know, you can resist someone without saying a word. I've been preaching a long time. I've had people sit in the congregation, and you could just see them. They're not, they're not picking up what I'm laying down, amen? They're, they're there, and they're like this, you know, and they're coming in, they're looking at me, and they got one eye squinted. They're resi- I can feel the resistance of it. Now, that just makes me get more tenacious, so, you know, it doesn't really bother me, but I feel the bounce back sometimes. And, you know, preachers are sensitive to those things. Why? Because we're not up here, you know, doing a show or entertaining you. We're trying to connect with you on a spiritual level to bring you closer to God. Amen. So Jesus felt the resistance of, the, of these people out there. You know, they're, they're, they're there to scrutinize him and resist him. And you might think, you know, what, what's the issue with these guys here? Well, the truth is they had to refute and discredit Jesus because he was showing how weak and worthless their religious rule-keeping was when it came to helping people. When we're sick, when we're hurting, when we're overcome in sin, when we're struggling with addiction, we don't need religious rules and people to tell us why. You know, that, that's what these guys were all about. Well, you're sick because you sinned, or you're sick because you're not holy, or you, you, know, you don't have this because... And, and all they did was nitpick, and they were worthless to people who were in need. So if they didn't refute Jesus and discredit his ministry, he was going to con- continue to reveal how worthless this, these guys' you know, religious rule-keeping was to the people. And I want to say th- some things about spirituality. Spirituality without spiritual authenticity is worthless. Oh, I'm spiritual. I know a lot of things about, you know, I can quote scriptures and stuff. But are you connected to Jesus? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Amen. Spirituality without spiritual authenticity is worthless. Why? Because when it comes down to it, all I can share is head knowledge or rules or facts, but I can't share Jesus with anybody. Spirituality, when it, spirituality when it has no spiritual power attached to it, is worthless. The person who says they know God and they know scripture and they know Jesus, but they they can't pray for the sick and they can't bring healing and they can't bring restoration to relationships and there's no life coming out of them. Come on, all of us have been around people like that. They talk the talk, but you know, they, they have nothing to bring to the table when the rubber hits the road. Oh, I'm spiritual, but are you authentic? Oh, I'm spiritual, but do you have spiritual power? Spirituality without a deep love for the lost, the broken, and the hurting is worthless. It's a tinkling cymbal. It's a sounding gong. It's devoid of love. It seeks to puff itself up and to elevate itself above people. We should never want to elevate ourselves above anybody. 
Jesus didn't do it. He got into the dirt and the muck and the mire. He smelled like sheep. He got in the midst of the crowd. They thronged him. They pushed up against him. Come on. He didn't elevate himself up above people. Look, I don't even want to preach from up here. I want to be down here, but I'm a short little Italian. And they said, we can't see you. We can't, you know, they see the top of my bald spot. And they said, get back up there. So I got to get up here, but we should never elevate ourselves above anybody. Because that makes us, you know, spiritual and worthless. And I want to say something. Proverbs 25, 14 says, like clouds without wind, like clouds and wind without rain is the person that boasts of his gifts falsely. The person that says they're spiritual but has no spiritual power, Proverbs 25 is for them. We should be very careful to avoid becoming spiritual and worthless. Now, when I said this in first service, they closed up like a flower. Why? Because it's pretty, it's, it's pretty sobering, amen? Spiritual and worthless, yeah, you can be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. You can be so religious in your rule-keeping that you default to the law and there's no grace that pours out of your life. You can be spiritual and know facts and details and quote scriptures, but have no presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you become spiritual and worthless, now, you say, well, Pastor, that don't sound right. I'm going to give you a scripture in a minute, but I want to say something about that. I don't think it's our place to ever call another person worthless. Please hear this pastor's heart. Don't ever think of yourself as worthless, and don't ever call someone else worthless. Amen? Don't do it. <laughs> you know, there are times when you're around people where you feel like, this person is worthless. You know, when you're, you got a person on the floor, and they're not breathing, and there's 10 people standing there like this. And you're doing CPR, and nobody's helping you. No one's calling 911, and you look at them. Sometimes in an emergency, people seize up, and you look at them, and you're like, you're worthless. I'm breaking windshields. I'm pulling people out. And you're sitting there going, maybe it's some of you because you look confused. <laughs> or sometimes you're on a job site, and you're working, and you're shoveling, and you're digging, and you're doing this, and you're doing that, and you're thinking 10 steps ahead. And you've got all kinds of people around you leaning on shovels. And you're like, dude, you're worthless. Like, we've all thought things like that. But be very careful in a spiritual sense. The older I get, the more tender my heart gets. No one is spiritually worthless because no one is beyond the hand of God. Listen, the Apostle Paul. <laughs> so the camera's got the top of my head for that. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was killing Christians. And he was, he was out of control, and he's getting warrants, and he's going out, and he's pulling people out of their homes. That would be pretty spiritually worthless to the kingdom, wouldn't it? Yet God grabbed a hold of him and knocked him down and then picked him back up again and made him the greatest apostle that ever lived that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Come on, come on, come on. No one is beyond the reach of God. You're not beyond the reach of God. God can turn it around in anyone's life who's willing. So don't call anyone worthless. But the scripture wants us to understand there is a very real possibility that people who once were spiritual would become spiritually worthless. Listen to Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be salty again? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You can come to a place in your life where you're so self-centered, so smug, so self-satisfied, so religious that you are no use to the kingdom of God. Now, it's God's call and not ours, but it's a very real possibility that we should all guard against. 
And you know what? The longer we serve the Lord, the more we're in danger of becoming that way. Let's not get lukewarm. Let's stay hot. Let's stay hot for Jesus. Amen. Come on. Amen. So these guys are out there. They're scrutinizing. They're, they become, you know, religious rule keepers. They become spiritual but worthless. And Jesus is about to confront them and, and kind of just, you know, blow their minds here a little bit. They're out there and they're thinking them to themselves in their hearts. And Jesus is listening to their thoughts. Hello. You know, when so, you know, in, in the prophetic realm with spiritual gifts, I'm going to talk about in a minute, we call it, you know, reading somebody's mail. When you walk up to them and you begin to prophesy to them and you tell them all the things they've been thinking about. Did you ever have somebody, you know, just, you know, saying stuff to you and you're thinking, did I say that out loud? You know, these guys are sitting there, did, you know, uh, you know you say it out loud? No, I didn't say it out loud. How does he know this? And Jesus begins to just minister to them. And and it's a powerful moment for these guys. I'm not sure that they're getting it, but he's listening to the thoughts and intentions of their heart. He's discerning their hearts. Now, you would think that in and of itself would convince them that this guy is a special guy, that he's at least a prophet, that he's somebody, you know, he's somebody connected. But no, they continue to persist and resist against him. So he continues to read their mail. In verse 7, they come to a legalistic conclusion about Jesus here. And, you know, this is what they say. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So, you know, Jesus, immediately Jesus is aware in his spirit that they were reasoning this way in themselves, and he said to them. So, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of pondering what he said. They're thinking about the words that he said. Their conclusion is that, you know, he spoke in blasphemy. Now, most of us have never been accused of blasphemy, but even when you say the word blasphemy, it, it, it doesn't sound pretty no matter how you say it. You know, you can't say blasphemy. No, it's blasphemy. It's bad. So what is blasphemy? Let's take a look at it. It's from the Greek word blasphemia, and it was translated into the Latin, then into Old French, and then into English as blasphemy. So from blasphemia to blasphemy, it is the act or offense of speaking sacrilegious about God or sacred things. It's irreverence. It's disrespect for God or Jesus. The modern English translation is the act of insulting or showing contempt or a lack of reverence for God or claiming divine attributes for yourself. Wow. So blasphemy is a pretty serious thing. In fact, in the Old Testament, you could be stoned for it. The, the penalty for you know, blasphemy was the death penalty if you would blaspheme, and this is in Israel. Luke 2.10 says this, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven by him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Wow. Serious, isn't it? Blasphemy is a serious thing. That's why, you know, I hear all kinds of people say, the Holy Spirit doesn't do this, and the Holy Spirit doesn't that, and, and this is not the Holy Spirit, it's the devil. Be very careful about calling what you don't understand the devil, because blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a serious thing. If you don't understand it, say you don't understand it. But be very careful about calling anything that the Scripture shows to be part of what the children of God are to be functioning in, about calling it the devil. That's a serious situation. So here, they, they are accusing Jesus of committing spiritual felonies, felonies that, are, that would carry the death penalty. This guy is blaspheming. Now, interestingly enough, 
if Jesus was just a man, they are exactly right in their conclusion. Now, we said they're religious. We didn't say they're dumb and wrong all the time. Hello? But they're exactly right. Why? Because man can't forgive another man's sins. Now, listen, I can forgive you if you sin against me. But in the final analysis, it's God that forgives our sins. Amen. So if Jesus is just a man and he's saying, oh, I forgive you, you can't come to me or Pastor Mike or Pastor Frank at the end of service and say, please forgive me of my sins. No, I can lead you to the cross and we can pray together. But, you know, that, that's, not my, that's above my pay grade, hello? Now, some of you that came out of churches that have distorted the scripture think that a man can forgive your sins. But no, there's one mediator between us and that's Jesus Christ, amen? There's one name under heaven that saves us and forgives us. So... So, you know, men don't go around saying your sins are forgiven. So their conclusion is correct, yet they are totally missing the point of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is using this situation as a vehicle to reveal himself to the multitudes and to the religious leaders. He's showing them, yeah, guys, you're smart. You're right. If I was just a mere man, what I said is blasphemy. But what I'm trying to show you today is I'm revealing myself to you. Now, it's a subtle reveal, but the reveal is there because the fact that God only forgives sins and Jesus is just about to demonstrate his power to do so reveals that he is God. Now, the religious people pick up on this and they're enraged. You know, when Jesus would, you know, equate himself to be divine, it would get the religious people so mad, they'd tear their clothes, they'd pick up rocks. You look throughout the Gospels, they'd try to stone him. He'd slip through the crowd like a ninja. You know, he'd just do his little poof and gone. But the religious people would get mad. Look at the, re look at the response of the common people. They get excited. We've never seen anything like this before. The kingdom of God has come to visit us, Amen. I wonder which group we're in. Are we religious when God is moving, when God is flowing, when the Holy Spirit's doing his thing? Do we shrink back? Do we judge it? Or do we receive it with gladness? I mean, test it and make sure it's, it's real. But at the same time, as, as God is moving throughout the churches, amen, we should be excited about what God is doing. So Jesus is revealing himself here. It's subtle, but they're picking up on it, both the religious crowd and eventually the, the common people, they're gonna pick up. Yes, Jesus does things that only God can do. Jesus says things that only God can do because he is, in fact, God. In fact, Matthew 1 reiterates this idea that Jesus is Emmanuel. Isaiah, in chapter 7 of the book of Isaiah, verse 14, Isaiah said, you know, that the messianic prophecy that he will be Emmanuel, God with us. And so here's Matthew picking up on that again in, in uh, chapter one. He says, behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and his name shall be Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. He's ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He has the name above every name, and he is God. He can forgive sins. He can set captives free. He can heal the sick. He can raise the dead. That's the God that we serve. <laughs> Are you pondering what I'm saying out there? You'd be better off just saying amen. Jesus is revealing himself here, and these guys are missing it for the moment. Now, in verses 8 and 9, Jesus starts to answer all the questions they never said out loud. This is where, you know, he starts to freak them out a little bit. 
And I'm thinking they're, they're realizing who they're dealing with here. Immediately, Jesus was aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves. Look at this. You know, who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man that can read the hearts and minds of men? Who can look right through the facade and see into the heart? And he, and, and he looks in and he sees, you know, what they're reading. He says, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Man, I would love to have a picture of their faces when he said that. Man, does anybody have a picture Bible? Mine has no pictures. You know, why are you reading? And they're like, Awesome, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your bed and walk? Now, he, he approaches them in an interesting way. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't just, you know, I don't care about you guys. No, he, he cares. He loves them. He wants them to be saved. So, you know, he challenges them with a question, which is easier? Now, I want you to notice Jesus' approach in dealing with these guys. They're out there pondering, so they're thinkers. So what does he do? He asks the thinkers to think about something. Hello? And this is important. Why? Because we have to be spiritually adept enough to meet people where they're at. Jesus, they're thinkers, they're ponderers. Okay, guys, think about this. Answer this question. <laughs> you know, I, I want to give you something to think about. You and I need to discern who we're talking to. Are we speaking to people who are intellectual? Are they philosophical? Are they emotional? We need to learn to speak their language and ask them questions generated by the Holy Spirit to meet them where they are, to minister to them from every angle and angles that they can understand. When Jesus spoke to the people, it was an agrarian society. It was agriculturally driven. So he spoke about seeds and plowing and harvest and tilling and all of these things so they can understand. When the Apostle Paul spoke to the very intellectual Greeks on Mars Hill, he tapped into their philosophy and he said, let me talk to you about your altar to the unknown God. I know who he is. His name is Jesus. He used their, their intellect as a segue to bring the gospel. You and I need that much wisdom. We need to stop you know, approaching the intellectual with things that, that they don't understand. We need to stop approaching the common man with things that they don't understand. I've heard Christians trying to witness to, you know, people, and they're talking about the book of Revelation. What, what does it matter if you know what the fifth horn on the third beast represents if you don't know Jesus? So that doesn't work. So then we talk about tithing with them. Are you crazy? You went from science fiction to money. They're, now they think you're nuts. Tell them about the love of God. Tell them about the forgiveness of sin. Tell them that he can restore relationships, amen, that he can forgive. That's what people want. They want to be forgiven. They want inclusion. They want to be part of, the, of a family. Well, the Antichrist will reign on the... Da, 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 da. <laughs> oh, sometimes. Deal without knowledge is a destructive thing. Here's Jesus relating to them, hitting them exactly where they live. He gives the thinker something to think about. So you thinkers think about this. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Here we go. Here's something for you guys to ponder. Your sins are forgiven. Take up your bed and walk. <clears throat> now, from a totally human perspective, the answer is this. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Now, think about that. Those of us who are spiritual know that the forgiveness of our sins is the most incredible, awesome thing that we could ever get, amen? And that only Jesus could broker it for us by giving himself on the cross in our place. 
So to us, man, you know, healing physical bodies, praise God. But the greatest miracle is that now I'm forgiven of my sins, that I'm born again, that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the greatest miracle. Don't forget that that's the greatest miracle. Don't get caught up in healing bodies and doing all this stuff. Listen, you could have a perfect body and spend eternity in hell. Or you could look like me and be saved. So the answer from the flesh perspective is this. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Now, why is that? Because being forgiven of sin has no outward manifestation for us to use as verification. You know, if I come to the altar and I kneel down and I pray and I get back up, you know, somebody would look at me, wow, you've just been forgiven of sin. No, they can't tell because it's an inward thing. Could you imagine if when we sinned, we turned a different color? You know, if we turned like bright red or pink or something, ooh, sin, you know? Then when we got forgiven, we'd go back to regular. But there's no outward manifestation that allows us verification. It's an inward thing. So if Jesus says your sins are forgiven, the, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them, they, they can't verify that. But if he says to them, hey, paralyzed guy, get up and walk, and he does, they can verify that, right? I mean, that's either, if you say the paralyzed man you know, you're healed in Jesus' name, and he just lays there. Well, then he didn't get healed, or it's progressive healing. But if he says, you know, get up, and he gets up, then that's easy to verify. So Jesus is making the point. He's speaking their language that, you know, the outward is what they judge everything by. They don't look at the inward. So what's easier? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Now, the next verses here, 10 through 12, you're going to see Five expressions of grace that are so powerful. I'm going to read you verses 10 through 12 as Jesus brings this miracle to full conclusion. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your bed and walk. But so that you may know, listen to verse 10, so powerful, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up pick up your bed and go home. And he got up immediately, picked up his bed and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Five expressions of faith here in these verses. The first one is this. Jesus reveals himself to the people. Look what it says, so that you may know. He's revealing himself to those spiritual antagonists there but he's revealing himself to the multitude as well. Now, he has, no, he has no obligation to do this. He's here for a mission that he's gonna complete, yet his compassion and his grace pours out, and he reveals himself to the people. You know, look, stop and think of all it took for Jesus to reveal himself to you and to me, how he wooed us, how he drew us, how he lured us in with his love and his grace, how the cross spoke to us, how the empty tomb spoke to us, how the resurrection power spoke to us to the point where our eyes were open and we saw and we got saved. Think of all that he did to reveal himself just to me, just to you. Thank you, Jesus. That's pure grace today. The second place where he shows this grace is here. He displays his spiritual authority to the people. Now, it says that the Son of Man has power. Say power. 
that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He displays his spiritual power and his spiritual authority because he's saying, yeah, guys, I'm not just a man. I'm not just a prophet. I'm Emmanuel, God with you. And I have the authority to forgive sins, and I have the power to heal broken bodies. And I'm going to reveal that to you today. What an amazing thing. He had no obligation to do that. He could have just, you know, avoided the whole situation. No, but he wanted to reveal himself. He wanted to bless them. Why? Because once they got a glimpse of who he was, there was no unseeing that. Once you and I see God move and do things and heal people and heal us, nobody can tell us that's not real. Come on, you seasoned saints, you who've walked with God. What argument can they bring to you to say that God's not real? I've seen him do so much in my life and in the lives of others. I've heard his voice. I've watched his hand move. I've watched his spirit move. I've watched him heal the sick and do all these things. And listen, there's nothing you can tell me. So he reveals himself, and he solidifies something in the hearts and minds of each of these people. Number three, the third expression of grace is this. He instantly heals the paralyzed man. Now, this miracle wouldn't be a miracle if this guy doesn't get healed, right? Jesus doesn't speak a word of encouragement to him, give him some pep talk or happy clappy thing. Well, God can use you in your condition now. Nope. Nope. He speaks the word, and the scripture says, immediately the man is healed. How many are thankful for immediate breakthroughs? Amen. Now, we said some miracles are progressive. We're going to see that in the, you know, those lepers who he says, go show yourselves to the priests. We're going to see some progressive miracles as we study these. But when God does something instantly, boy, it is such an impactful thing a life that is turned around on a dime, a body that, you know, is failing that now comes alive again. Come on, the immediate, the instant, those things are very powerful. He says to this guy, I say to you, arise. Whoa, Jesus had to be looking at him because if he just said it out loud, all the graves would start to open. Powerful. Arise, take up your bed and go home. Notice, he didn't even want him to linger around. Get out of here. Don't let people, you know, scrutinize, handle, talk you out of it. Take up your bed and get away from here. <laughs> just get your miracle and, be, and, and, and just, you know, chew on that for a while. Sometimes we get a miracle and we, we, we bring it in front of everybody and they're like, nah, come on. Before you know it, they've undermined your faith and you revert back to what you were stuck in. So immediately he heals this guy and that's a beautiful display of his spiritual authority. It's a beautiful display of his spiritual power, and he lets the people see that. Number four, the fourth expression of grace is this. He allows the religious crowd to see a miraculous sign. You might think, well, they were always there, so you know Jesus wasn't going to stop doing miracles. But there was something about the religious crowd because they were sign seekers. In fact, Matthew 12, 38 says this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Could you imagine these guys? Jesus is healing and ministering, and the kingdom of God is exploding all around them. And these little little vermin have the nerve to say to him, We we want to see a sign from you, as if he's a trained porpoise at SeaWorld. Why don't you do a trick for us, Jesus? You know, why don't you perform something for us just to prove to us? And I mean, think about the audacity of that. 
Well, guys, why don't you just show up tomorrow morning somewhere and you'll see the kingdom of God? No, you know, show us a sign, perform for us. And Jesus is not having it. Here's his response. Now, this was after he read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says the only sign you're going to see, you blind leaders of the blind, is that I'm going to die and rise again on the third day, and that'll be the only sign you get to see. Yet here we are in Mark, and these religious guys are sitting out in front, and remember, you know, people can be religious and lost, but they can also be saved too. So what does Jesus do? As an act of pure grace, he reveals himself to them and he shows them a sign. Think about that, the graciousness of that. I don't know if they had a different level of humility as the other people he was talking to, but, you know, he allows them to see the sign. And, you know, did they deserve to see one? No. Were they doubters? Yes. Did they, you know... Were they hard and stiff-necked and stubborn? Absolutely, but Jesus loved them. And so he allows them to see. And you know what? I'm thinking that it affected them in a way that brought some of them to belief and salvation. You say, well, do you have any proof of that? I don't, but I pray that it does. And there's some things in the text here we're going to take a look at in just a minute. But it says in the text that, so that all were amazed and glorified God. Did you hear that? The guy is healed and it says all. I'm praying that all, in that all were some of those religious leaders that day. That the reason Jesus revealed himself is because he discerned that there was faith there in their hearts that they could be saved. You know, a lot of these guys eventually followed him and became members of the early church. The early church was initially primarily Jewish converts. So never count the religious out. You know, at least religious people believe in God or believe in Jesus. And sometimes they're a heartbeat and a prayer away from having a relationship with him. The fifth act of grace that's shown here, and I conclude with this, is this. He honors the expectant faith of those four friends. Now, we're, we're talking about all these other things that happen here, and we've probably forgotten about the four friends at this point, right? We're talking about the religious leaders. We're talking about the miracle. We're talking about the guy getting up. But those four friends who brought him there, they initiated the miracle. Why? Because they came in faith. Now, we may have forgotten about them, but Jesus didn't forget about them. In fact, he, you know, he blesses them. Why? By answering their prayers, by doing the miracle that they expected him to do if they could just bust through the crowd and bust through the roof and get their buddy at the feet of Jesus. He honors their faith. And I want to encourage you today. There's some times where we have to stand in faith, not just for moments or for days, or for weeks, there's sometimes we're required to stand in faith for decades. There's things that I believe for and hope for and prayed for for decades that have not yet come to pass. And if I can be very honest with you, uh, sometimes I just want to say, you know what, God, uh, you know, I, I prayed it. I know you've heard me. So at this point, whatever. Now you look uncomfortable. Oh, pastor, on your birthday, no faith. No, I'm just being real with you that sometimes waiting wears us out. 
Sometimes, you know, and, and maybe God is never going to answer the thing the way we want it, but we just have to trust him enough to watch him work it out the way we need it worked out, amen? But <laughs> hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. That's one of the favorite scriptures of impatient people. I'll wait for you to catch up. You know, we want it now. We want immediate. We want it immediately, the man. No, but decades. And, and, and there's times where God rewards faith immediately, and there's times where he, he, he requires us to stand in faith. But if you're standing in faith today, I don't care how long it is, and I don't mean that in a callous way because I'm with you. If you're standing in faith and believing God, for God for something, do not quit. Do not back down. Do not throw in the towel. Amen? So... <laughs> Sometimes you might have to say, whatever, God, as long as that's impregnated with the thought that I trust you, maybe I'm missing it, but I trust you, God. When God comes through and answers that thing, listen to me, when God finally comes through and he will come through and he's heard and he answers that thing, it's going to galvanize your faith. It's going to galvanize your relationship with him in a way that the immediate answer would never have done. If you and I get everything the moment we ask for it, we'd be little spiritual spoiled brats. I want it now. And God answers from heaven. Sometimes the waiting, sometimes the tenacity, sometimes holding on to that expectant faith builds something in us that the immediate answer never would and never could it galvanizes our faith. It brings us joy and affirmation and a greater trust in him than we ever could have had. John Maxwell, one of the foremost Christian speakers on leadership, he wrote a book called Partners in Prayer. And he tells about this answer to prayer that happened in the 1800s. And I want you to listen to it. In, in the summer of 1876, grasshoppers nearly destroyed all the wheat crops in Minnesota. In the spring of 1877, the farmers were so worried that the plague would visit them again that year that it would financially devastate them for good. The situation was so serious that Governor John S. Pillsbury proclaimed April 26th a day of prayer and fasting. He urged every man, woman, child to ask God to prevent this horrible plague. Now, amen for a godly governor, amen. Amen for a man of God that will stand up and ask a state to pray. God, give us such men again and deliver us from what we have, though we may deserve it. The farmers were worried. The governor, God, God bless John S. Pillsbury. He calls for prayer and fasting, a governor who believes in the power of God. On that April day, all the schools were closed. The shops were closed. The stores shut down. The offices closed, and there was a reverent, quiet hush over the entire state of Minnesota. Wow. The next day dawned bright and clear. The temperature soared to what they would not usually experience in April, but in midsummer. The temperatures were very hot for April. The Minnesotans were devastated to discover that the heat was allowing billions of grasshopper larvae to hatch. And so they, they see this three days coming here and the grasshoppers are beginning to hatch and the larvae's coming out. 
And they're in a panic at this point. You know, some of them must have thought, it's over, we're done. You know, they were making plans. It appeared once again that their crops would be destroyed for good. But on the fourth day, the temperatures suddenly plummeted so hard and fast that a frost covered the entire state. And the result was that it killed every single grasshopper. Wow. Historical truth, a fact of our nation in the 1800s. Amen. People who would stop and pray. Now, if you say, I don't believe that, shut up. If you, if you say, well, you know, it just can't happen today, stop. If we'll humble ourselves again and believe the God who does miracles, amen, you say, well, will everybody do it? No, but listen, if the righteous call out, what God could do if we would partner and call out and shut everything down, shut all our distractions down, and fast and pray and seek the God of heaven for restoration in our state, in our nation, in the world? God answers prayer. You say, what about those three days? Why those three days where the larva's hatching? Why? Because he allowed the, the larva to hatch so they could be vulnerable so that the frost would kill them all. Sometimes it looks bad and it looks like it's getting worse, but God is on the way. It might take four days. It might take five days. It might, it might take 30 days. I don't know, but I know we can trust him. God answers prayer. God honors faith. He honored the faith of these four guys, and he did a miracle here that impacted, multiplied lives that we can't even calculate. To this day, this miracle is impacting people to believe God for the unbelievable. Amen. I want to encourage you today. We serve a God who does miracles, amen? You and I need to stop being distracted by all the things of this life and seek the face of God in prayer, to seek the face of God for, to meet our needs, to do miracles in our lives. Listen, what's eating up your harvest? What's eating up your blessing? They might not be grasshoppers in the natural, but the enemy is stealing from you. Cry out to God. He'll fight for you do miracles on your behalf. Let's bow our heads today. Father, I just thank you for this message this morning. I thank you for every soul within the sound of my voice that's hearing it. Father, I pray that their faith would be encouraged. God, you have not called us to the normal pedestrian Christian life, but you've called us to do exploits for our God. God, help expand our faith today. Help us to walk away from the distractions that rob our spiritual power. Father, don't allow us to become religious and lost, spiritual and worthless, but allow us to be salt and light in the earth. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise this morning.